today we have an interesting conversation with uh, Professor Amitabh Acharya of uh, American University. Professor Acharya is uh, perhaps one of the most leading uh, scholars of IR coming from the Global South. And uh, both of us were presidents of ISA, the first two Global South people origin, of origin. And I have a lot of uh, appreciation personally for Amitabh's contribution, not just for um, scholarship, but for institution building and making international studies discipline as well as ISA uh, at least partially global association today and global discipline today. And Amitabh has contributed immensely to enriching, broadening this discipline. And today we are going to talk a little bit about his new project on civilization state that he has taken up. He was just talking to me about a new book potentially coming out of Yale University Press on this big subject. But he just published or publishing, about to publish an article on the subject of civilization state, its constraints, its limitations, and its possibilities in the journal called Ethics and International Affairs. So welcome, Amidav. It's a pleasure to chat with you. This is very informal. We just want to know, what is, uh, why is the civilizational state idea is back? Obviously, we have uh, electoral, ethnic mobilization, status achievement by some of these states. But it seems it's beyond um, what Huntington and others said. It's, it's just uh, uh, a short-term phenomenon, or is it something a very catchy thing, and you tackle that very well in article. Just summarize for this audience very briefly what you take, what your take on it. Thank you, uh, Professor TV Paul. I'm very glad to be uh, in your uh, program, and thanks for the question on uh, civilization states. Uh, actually, some people also call it uh, civilization state; others call it civilizational state. I call it civilization state. This is a concept that's been going around for the past few years. It's not entirely new, uh, but uh, it, has a, it is a little different from um, the previous uh, idea of uh, like Huntington's idea of a class of civilizations. So um, when Huntington talked about class of civilizations, he actually did not make a, a clear distinction between civilization and state. In fact, he conflated them. Uh, so, so civilizations were actually to him units by themselves. And even though he was very state-centric uh, in his analysis. But uh, lately, uh, some um, scholars and uh, media people, uh, for example, Gideon Rackman from Financial Times, uh, they've been talking about a civilizational state or civilization state as if it's a kind of a emerging new entity to replace uh, the nation state. So, uh, so the, we, had ha we have had nation state, uh, a system of nation state, uh, states for the last uh, three, 400 years. And uh, the argument is that a civilization state will replace it or subsume it. And this is because um, looking at countries like uh, India, China, uh, Russia, Turkey, where leaders, uh, their leaders are trying to uh, identify themselves in terms of their civilizations, mm. as opposed to uh, having a more secular uh, and open um, uh, kind of cultural uh, identity. And this came about uh, partly because uh, leaders like Modi, Prime Minister Modi in India, have been talking about, very frequently talks about India's uh, 
Vedic civilization or Indus Valley civilization. The government has been, the BJP government in India has been trying to rewrite history in some ways uh, to give uh, the Indian history more of a Vedic uh, flavor that our Indian Vedic civilization was actually born in India, not brought in by migrants or nomadic Aryans, so to speak, Indo-Aryans. Uh, in China, there's a lot of talk about uh, concepts like uh, Tianxia, uh, harmony, uh, Confucianism. In Turkey, there is uh, Erdogan has been trying to uh, you know, identify himself more as a Islamic uh, leader, as opposed to in the uh, Kemalist tradition of uh, looking at uh, Turkey as a secular state. Mm -hmm. And then in Russia, we have Putin also, and um, uh, the Russian elite, not all of them, um, talking about Russia's uh, role as uh, an, a civilization in itself, not part of the Western civilization, but a Eurasian civilization. Some people even call Russia as the third Rome after the fall of uh, the Roman Empire, the first Roman Empire, and then above the Byzant um, Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. So this has uh, gotten to the sort of attention and in fact the nerve of some uh, Western writers. So we think this is an attack on liberalism the liberal uh, international order. Uh, this is a further proof that liberal order is uh, collapsing. Now, my uh, goal in this paper uh, uh, is uh, to write, uh, to, to challenge that. Mm. But I think uh, my argument is very simple, that uh, it's, there is no question that leaders of some countries are trying to use civilization for uh, domestic politics and even foreign policy. No question about it. But not everybody in those countries who use civilization are trying to do that. Yeah. Uh, there are actually some uh, scholars and uh, public intellectuals who are genuinely interested in using civilization as a basis for uh, making a, you know, a theoretical philosophical statement. Uh, as you know only too well, uh, international relations is based on Western civilization. It's a very American, European civilizational discourse. So when... Even when scholars from China, India, and Turkey uh, I don't know much about Russia in that sense. They talk about their past. They're not necessarily justifying the governments. They are simply saying this is a fertile source for deriving concepts like uh, Ashoka as Dharma, Kautilya as a source of realism, or Chinese uh, uh, moral realism, as Yan Yan Sweetan talks about. Mm -hmm. then, that may or may not overlap with the government agenda, but I don't think that's what people are doing. What they are trying to do is to have open up the space of higher theory and engage their Western counterparts who are still relying on a very traditional European civilizational discourse without in acknowledging it. So I wrote this article to expose that, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, this civilizational state idea is a way of, uh, uh, you know, uh, conceptualizing uh, international relations theory from the global south drawing on local culture, it doesn't mean that this is uh, supporting the governments all the time. Mm. I also make the point that if you want to look at how governments are playing uh, culture, the culture card, that is also being done in the West. The President Trump isn't talking about Western civilization. The European Union is a civilizational grouping. I mean, it rejected Turkey's membership a decade, a decade and a half ago. Turkey was a Muslim state. So, 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 uh, why not then write about those civilizations? I mean, that kind of a Western discourse. And, and if you look at civilizational state discourse, you know, it's all about uh, the emerging powers. Mm. 
It's all about India, China. So that, that's a very interesting point. I mean, if you look at um, um, all imperial projects had some civilizational content to them, the more enduring yeah. ones. And obviously these countries are trying to seek uh, more international status, more position in the governance structures. But one other thing about even Indian, and Ch uh, Indian civilization, take for example, is what Amartya Sen calls, it's sort of the argumentative tradition. It's also the tradition of inclusiveness. And you find that is a challenge for all these alternate arrangements. They don't seem to care about um, non-ethnic or non-majoritarian uh, um, components of the civilization. And I think that does not then give a powerful challenge to the liberal order because it is, whatever its deficiencies, it still has some inclusiveness in it, which is where I think um, uh, the alternatives don't look appealing to anyone who wants to be part of it. I mean, you and I come from uh, Indian civilization, but we are not probably going to be included in that notion of civilization. I think that's a big challenge, the inclusiveness part. And how do you translate that in the global governance arrangement? If you're saying we are going to represent a majoritarian viewpoint, or the Russian, uh, whatever ethnic, Chinese ethnic group, or India too, or Turkey. And what does that do to the notion of your own idea of a multiplex uh, system in the power, uh, uh, governance structures, and the need for creating more inclusive orders. So you raise a quite a few uh, a number of points, and let me try to address them as much as I, as many of those as I can. First of all, um, this civilizational state idea takes a very short, uh, limited view of history. Mm. Now, I'm also writing a book. Uh, the book I'm writing is not about civilizational state, although there will be a chapter. It actually looks at, it's a comparative civilization book, looking at um, civilizations in Asia, Africa, Latin America, uh, or before Colombian uh, America, the Aztecs and Mayas and Incas, as well as Europe and the United States. And uh, one thing that comes out very clearly to me, and this is very fundamental to my position on this issue, mm -hmm. is that all civilizations are eclectic. They have uh, mixed elements. They have um, rational elements, they have uh, mystical elements. They are uh, realist, they are liberal, or idealist, uh, liberal. And they, uh, they, are, uh, they have elements of war and the peace. And just to give you one example from India, within the same single dynasty called Maurya, we had two representations, two worldviews. One, the Kautilya, very uh, kind of realist, although not, he's not as hyper-realist as people think. But you also have Ashoka, yeah. who was uh, as idealist as after the war in Kalinga, uh, as it gets. In, in China, uh, in the warring states, you have the legalists, who are very realist, and uh, to use a modern concept, and then you have Confucians, who are very idealist. Islam has the same tradition. In, in Islam, you have uh, uh, very theological orthodox traditions, uh, who believe in the existence of God, and God created everything. But you have people like Averroes or even Russia who uh, believe in the doctrine of uh, eternal eternity of the world, which said that God did not create uh, the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, uh, and Islam also has uh, traditions of uh, both peacefulness, just war, not to attack or kill civilians in combat, 
um, and they also have very aggressive streaks. Yes. So uh, that's my point, that uh, it's very hard to stereotype civilizations as a realist or idealist, uh, rational or irrational, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, um, in that sense, good or bad. Every civilization is eclectic. Yes. So my idea in the book is to bring out that eclectic dimension. So civilizations are by definition plural, they're not singular, and they're not an island. They're always, in, even the Chinese civilization, which is supposed to be very homogeneous, or Japanese society, very right? deeply influenced by other civilizations. Yeah. Buddhism uh, influenced, uh, they went to Nalanda to study Exactly, Xuanzang in the seventh century AD. So, in, and, uh, and Islam is even more eclectic because Islam is actually not confined to one or two states like a Hindu civilization uh, or Chinese civilization in the region. Islam is global. Yes. And, uh, you know, the Islam of uh, Abbasid Caliphate is not the same as the Islam of Indonesia, Islam of uh, Ottomans, or Islam of, uh, uh, you know, Fatimid Egypt. So, we have to understand these are not stereotypes civilized. That's my, that is multiplex, by the way. If you bring in this eclectic, diverse element of uh, uh, um, civilizations, then you say that you know, the return of civilization doesn't mean just a majoritarian. I mean, of course, India is a Hindu majority state, but in India, look at how many fights are going on between the Hindu nationalists and the non-nationalists. This is a major problem. I mean, this is also makes a mockery of the civilizational state idea. Because, um, you know, Modi, who has been talking about civilization, it may be out of power in the next election. He's deeply unpopular now. Uh, and partly because nobody believes in that kind of Hindutva ideology. And the Indians are waking up to this. Uh, in Turkey, there is a re similar resentment against Islamization. Uh, so, all I'm saying is the civilizational state is bound up with regime security rather than national identity. And the regime security is transient. Regimes come and go. Yeah. Uh, so uh, therefore making, uh, demonizing uh, mm -hmm. the use of civilization for foreign policy. Mm -hmm. or, um, and for me, I'm more interested in actually international relations theory mm -hmm. uh, is actually uh, totally uh, overreaction to say the very, very least. So what's the connection to global IR that you've been yeah. working with? Um, Barry Buzan in recent book, and they have done a lot of research before that. Um, there are those who would argue that uh, it is still an amorphous concept. It needs more specificity and all that. But I applaud the concept and the idea of working toward creating a more multiplex order. How do we achieve that? And one of the challenges you just identified, these other alternate uh, worldviews, sometimes don't come with something that is tangible, implementable. For instance, the notion of democracy, which I think is very crucial for, I mean, we don't want to take Western democracy as the role model, but clearly the liberal democratic idea is fundamentally something that has not been easy to challenge. Any, any other order cannot create that kind of representation, power transition without violence, a lot of pluses to it, but a lot of minuses. I mean, we all know that. But the point is, alternative systems are not offering anything comparable for, although they, they use democratic uh, electoral uh, platforms, and even at the global governance systems, now these countries want more democracy participation, but how do we translate these domestic uh, illiberal ideas into global system of governance, and there is the distinction between what we are doing internally and what we were seeking externally. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I'm trying to say? Yes, yes. Um, let me start with that. Um, so the idea of a liberal democracy or the idea of authoritarianism, the very broad concepts, the wide variations within each group. We know that American democracy is not the same as European democracy, social democracy. I mean, in, in Britain, somebody like Trump will not last more than three months, uh, or the Supreme Court will not be as politicized. Uh, in in, in uh, Northern Europe, the social democracy model is very different from the market uh, individualistic model. Uh, and in same with authoritarianism, we have dictatorships, we have semi-authoritarian states, uh, and uh, we have, uh, you know, democracies. I mean, look at, uh, 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 sorry, we, we, we have uh, uh, transitional uh, democracies. So, you know, China is not the same kind of authoritarian state as, uh, say, Singapore, for example. Uh, so, and that's that's basically has been the reality. The liberal um, liberal scholars have idealized uh, a particular form of democracy, and, and and they see this as a model. I don't blame them for that. And I speak as a big defender of democracy, and many Indians grew up, grew up with democracy, and uh, we are all influenced by uh, the attraction of the democratic ideal, but that's not blind us from the fact to the fact that there are variations, mm -hmm. and oftentimes uh, there will be a hybridity. Hybridity mean mix of uh, some democratic elements, some cultural elements, some you know uh, communitarian elements, uh, some individualistic elements. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the idea of a liberal order should embrace that diversity and still try to emphasize the more open, more uh, sort of a uh, um, rights-oriented, uh, the kind of system that gives you more rights, uh, individual rights, respects human dignity and freedom, as opposed to sort of dismiss everything that doesn't look like uh, American or European. Yes, um, and uh, that, that's arrogance. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in that sense, uh, to go back to your particular question, there are, I don't think alternatives, but there are variations. And those variations are not incompatible with each other. I'm not going to say Putin's Russia uh, is the uh, same as, uh, say, you know, in, uh, India or, uh, uh, or Japan or the United States. But there are a lot of in-between positions, and that's the reality of the world. Uh, so moving on to that, to global IR. Global IR embraces this diversity. Now you uh, said global, what is if global IR doesn't come across as a amorphous, uh, sorry, as a sort of coherent or a precise notion? I feel it was intended like that. Uh, global IR is not a theory of international relations. It's a, it's a framework to bring in diverse perspectives. And I want to be very clear about it. Uh, a global IR uh, can accommodate very different theoretical perspectives. Uh, it's agnostic about whether you're a realist or a liberal or a constructivist or a Marxist. Uh, you know, the main claim of global IR is that whatever theory you do, try to be as inclusive and, uh, and genuinely universal. That's Don't it. bring in something from Europe and say, this is universal. Yes. You try to look at, uh, you know, you may find that in other societies, there may not be exact replicas of uh, democracy or human rights, but there will be approximations yes. uh, of uh, uh, that idea. For example, the idea of Dharma in Ashoka, actually, uh, and Amartya Sen has talked about it. It's like a proto-human rights for human security. Uh, similarly, just war, I, I like to give this example of just war. Mm -hmm. The just war tradition has roots in every society. There's an Islamic tradition, there is a Confucian tradition, there's a, a Manu's, uh, 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 Manu Smithy, the laws of Manu. Krishna tells Arjuna. <laughs> uh, word by word, uh, like Geneva Conventions. 
uh, almost by word, you know, and uh, you can, I think you will see that a uh, part of that in my, some of my other writings. Similarly, we have Christian traditions. So why don't we look at these commonalities and get something out of it as opposed to creating binaries or either or. And global IR is not a binary. It's not an either or. Uh, it's basically finding common ground. Yeah. Now the downside of global IR therefore is that it may not be very good in theorizing. Uh, so you cannot have a deductive theorizing derived, but you can. It just needs further work and people are waking up to doing that. Yeah, that you means may, that you may need to go on specific themes and try to address. I think it's more for mid-range theories. Yeah, so, so you can derive concepts and ideas, uh, and uh, and whether you want to do this scientifically or in a, in a more classical way, yeah. you can do that. But another thing I want to emphasize is that global IR does not accept hmm. uh, what is called civilizational exceptionalism or cultural exceptionalism from the very beginning. And this is one of the uh, you know, uh, confusions or errors, or maybe deliberately ignoring this, uh, some critics, that, uh, that global IR is somehow uh, encouraging this regional schools like the Chinese school. Yeah. Actually, global IR thinks these are good things, more the better, uh, because it gives voice to a local community. But it also has, says that one should not be exceptionalist, or, uh, culturally arrogant in the other way. And, uh, and uh, it's very clear. It's um, something I call identity without exceptionalism. Uh, cultural exceptionalism and uh, and you know idea of cultural superiority not part of it but global IR also thinks that for a theory to be really you know more uh, receptive complementary to global IR it must travel it cannot be simply about that one country so like English school is not about England so the Chinese school cannot be about China only and there is an Indian school it's not just explain Indian foreign policy and another thing is it must have a critical mass. You can't have one or two scholars saying, this is a Chinese school or this is the Indian school. You must have a critical mass and a research agenda. You must have people doing dissertations and writing articles using that theory, which hasn't happened very much in the Chinese school yet. And yeah. finally, I, I say, stay away from policy. Although it is very common in the West, look at how many American IR scholars are in government and vice versa, revolving door. There's no you know, barrier to American scholars championing either Obama or Trump, a liberal or a, or a Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. So this is going to happen to every academic community. But I think that has to be still some distance. And, so uh, and I, I agree, but I, I think it's a very uh, laudable enterprise. What is missing is engagement on critical themes. I don't, I, I, this whole uh, global research network that I'm uh, part of it or initiated, uh, the effort is to bring in the idea of peaceful change in different cultures, civilization, different societies. And so we have an Oxford University Press handbook coming out on it. And what is interesting is every society, like you said, has some notions of peace and peaceful change, almost every society and cultures and, and civilizational approaches. But we often uh, kind of ignore those, we means in, especially in the West or in the East too, we sort of highlight our contributions. But I agree that it, this is a, a mix of contribution. What the world today is not created by any single country or civilization. The world is very much uh, multiple entry points, engagements. And so I think it is a fascinating project. But how do we encourage our younger scholars in different countries, including these rising powers, to engage each other, like the Chinese scholars. You know, they're very much into China's uh, civilizational approach for Indian scholars. How do you ask them to meet each other? I mean, there are very few like you who can 
travel between these civilizations and engage them each other. Because without that engagement, we may get still these islands of uh, theories or approaches. And that will be our final question because we have a half an hour limitation, yeah. I think. <laughs> I think you, do, you need to do two things. Uh, <clears throat> there are two elements to this uh, bringing scholars together under a global IR project. One is the dialogue between the Western scholars and uh, the so-called non-Western scholars. Mm. And uh, you know, some of that happens because there are a lot of people from Global South already in the West and they do that. But they don't talk to each other, they talk past each other. Mm. So it's important to have that kind of dialogue. And uh, you know, hopefully uh, in places like ISA, although ISA is in that sense not a perfect forum, there's a lot of, still a lot of gatekeeping uh, in uh, forums like uh, ISA, uh, even though it's getting better, but it's not there. Uh, the other thing is that dialogue and uh, conversations among uh, across the global south countries. Now that is uh, um, was very difficult in the past, but it's not uh, as bad as you think. I mean, there's a lot of meetings involving Chinese scholars and non-Chinese. I actually co-direct a project with Rajiv Vargava of Delhi and uh, Yan Suetong and Daniel Bell uh, called China India. A comparative civilization uh, IR project, uh, where we are bringing um, about you know, nine, 10 Chinese scholars, nine and 10 uh, Indian scholars after I joined papers. And we have uh, three meetings and uh, hopefully a book will come out. And, uh, and this is happening, but I'm not uh, minimizing the problem. I think uh, we need a long way to go to have that kind of dialogue. But I think the problem is, and honestly, the problem is not China, the problem is not India. Scholars from there will go anywhere to engage. It's the problem is uh, in the uh, West and particularly in the United States, because the United States is in a privileged position. IR is still in, a, in many ways, American social science. In the big journals, departments, we, you know, this is empirically proven. It's diminishing, but not diminishing. American dominance is not diminishing as much as one should. And why should they give up? They're in a privileged position. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of gatekeeping in journals, a lot, uh, even you know, people like me get into the gatekeeping. Uh, despite all my publications, uh, now I, I want to publish a book focusing on Global South Agency, and that goes to two traditional Western reviewers, and they say, what is this uh, agency of the Global South? Uh, so it's a battle you have to fight, but uh, I think uh, ultimately, and uh, you know, IR is a young science, it's been there for 100 years, but really, you know, in the, as an international, really international science, it's been only 20, 30 years, IR has become more popular outside of the West. And hopefully slowly it will change. And uh, even if it doesn't change, we should not just uh, be um, discouraged by that. We should keep writing and, uh, and, uh, and promoting that conversation, not talking within. It's not good for Global South scholars to talk to each other only. Yes. Just as it's not good for you know, South and North scholars to talk past each other. They should talk to each other. Well, that and was our, our, effort, uh, our effort at ISA when we were in charge for a brief period to bring together North and South and East and West to engage and we have made some partial achievements. So thank you, Amitabh. And uh, this has been a, a very exciting conversation with uh, someone who is doing something uh, fantastic. And I think uh, our colleagues in different parts of the world will continue your work. So I, we should uh, continue this discussion. <laughs>